a group of loggers enjoying their lunch are viciously attacked by our otherwise friendly Bigfoot, what happens when you take a holy book and decide to write it in blood? And then we take a look at the story of a man, a tree, black magic, and murder. All elements combine on the season finale of Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. It's not just another episode, it's the season finale. I'm always happy because I get to take a week off. Uh, This show is a lot of work. Let me finish my intro. Let me finish my intro. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. The show, though, does take a ton of work. No one's really ever done this before. So I'm basically giving myself a big old pat on the back, a daily paranormal podcast <laughs> just right there that's an extreme amount of work paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast monday through friday we're over two years now but i gotta take my breaks every 50 episodes because that was weird like i remember that first 50 episodes i did i go i gotta take a break i gotta take a week off which was tricky right you never know if you're gonna come back it's the same thing when when you take a semester off of college you never know if you're gonna come back that first break though i was like i gotta i, I can't keep doing this i'm burning out and then it was the next season. I thought oh, I can do. Let's see if I can just keep doing it. Maybe I just needed that one break. And, and really, right around fifty episodes, it's like you gotta take a break. So there's this. I I appreciate that you guys are so awesome that I can take these breaks. I think that now that we're doing the repeats, the behind the scene episodes, you guys are really digging on those too. So yeah, no, it's been an awesome journey. We're just getting started, man. We are just getting started with this show. We're still on that little like. If imagine this is a mountain. We've just crossed, like, the first rock, right? Because this is going to be a long journey, guys. I'm not packing up anytime soon. We got that peak in front of us. Let's go ahead and give a shout-out to one of our Legacy Patreon supporters. She's been with us for a long time, long-time listener, Misty Van Appledorn. Misty, take a bow, get a round of applause. You're on the season finale episode. You're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. Whatever vehicle we take, you're in charge of. And if you can't support the Patreon, that's fine, too. You guys know what I'm going to say. Just help get the word out about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. Not everyone has money to spend, but everybody has a mouth, hopefully. And you can, can do a little internet internet marketing for me. A little word of mouth, guys. Really, really appreciate it. Misty, let's go ahead and hop in the... You know, let's break it out. We haven't used it in a long time. Let's use the hair hang glider. So, Misty, you're going to get on this hang glider. We're all going to hold on to your feet, and we're going to jump off this cliff... And we're going to trust your expert piloting skills. We are flying out to Fort Bragg, California. Little, little, hopefully it's not little. Hopefully it's a very big hang glider. But we're all hanging on. Eventually we get to Fort Bragg, California. It's May 7th, 1997. We land in a clearing. We land in a Brad. And... We see a bunch of loggers there. They're like singing their logging song. Ah, uh, log. Axe. <laughs> it's not a very good song. It's not a very good song. They just say the word axe over and over again. Uh, chopping up the wood. With my axe. I'm just going to do that for the rest of the episode. I've lost it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm already taking my vacation. It's a group of loggers who are out here chopping up logs, doing the logging job. And then all of a sudden... With no provocation at all, 
out of the nearby forest comes running Bigfoot, just charging him. This story is like action-packed. It doesn't even give you a chance to break. These guys are chopping woods. That's pretty action-packed. Barks flying in their eyes. Everyone's getting splinters. Ah! Then all of a sudden, Bigfoot's running at him. The dudes, for whatever reason, they see an eight-foot-tall monster running at them. They immediately think, he must want our food. So they begin throwing their food at him. Which, okay, that's a bad tactic. Because if I'm a, if I'm a monster, I'm not going to think... If you're throwing bags of food at me, I'm not, I don't, I'm not like Chef Ramsay. I can't smell the food as it's flying towards me. I'm like, oh, that's filet mignon. I'm just going to think people are throwing bags at me. I'm a big old monster, man. They're throwing their bags of food at him. And he's like, Aah! And they realize quickly that he didn't want their food because he began picking up the bags and throwing the bags back at the loggers. When you're eight feet tall and 800 pounds, he's got an arm on him. So you're throwing like a chicken sandwich at him and he's throwing it back to you like it's a brick. He closes the distance. He's done throwing food. He doesn't think it's funny. He's like, Bigfoot find little amusement in wasting food, me environmentalist. He runs up to these loggers and according to this report, he begins to break their bones. He basically imagine the raid, the movie The Raid at this point. He's like snaps one dude's leg, smashes it, turns around, blocks it. All of a sudden, they're using hatchets. The loggers are using little hatchets. He's blocking them. Ugh! Punches another guy, busts his ribs. He's smashing these dudes' bones. Multiple bones were broken during this encounter. One guy takes off. I don't know why only one guy <laughs> did it. The rest of them were like, come on, guys, if we all work together, we can take them. Picking up their axes. One guy takes off, and he runs, and as he's running away... According to this story, he turns and Bigfoot is picking up loggers and throwing them into the river. At that point, you just got to keep running, right? You hope Bigfoot is dividing these people into two groups. The the bone-breaking people and the swimming people. Because if he's like breaking people's arms and then throwing them into the river, he's killing them. I mean, just getting, you can have all your limbs and you're going to have a dicey time in the river. But if he breaks your leg and throws you in the river, you're not getting out. One dude just runs, 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 runs. He ends up finding a helicopter, oddly enough, because we have one of those. He ends up finding a helicopter and the pilot is eating his lunch. He's just out there. Mm, 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 it's so good. He found a bunch of bags of lunch floating down the river. He's like, oh, this is so good. As he's walking, his back is turned. There's a bunch of loggers floating down the river, too. He's eating his lunch. The dude's like, hey, man, you gotta help me. Bigfoot's beating up a bunch of my dudes down to the logging camp. They get in the helicopter, I'm assuming, and they go back to... They're not gonna be like, oh, let's walk back there. Let's see what's going on with this massive creature. They they do end up going back to the logging camp, though. And apparently nobody died. Everyone just got... Everyone just got severely beaten. They all lost their lunch. No one had anything to eat for the rest of the day. They're like, ah... Anyways, the story ends with nobody dying. I guess some people had broken bones. Some people just had wet clothes. They get out of the river. They're like, oh, that was traumatic. I got thrown into the river. And he looks over at his buddies all broken up. So this is my only job. Yeah, I need bones to work. This story was in the... And we've talked about this before. I, I, I tried tracking it down. The Western Bigfoot Society newsletter. We did a story, I think, last week about Rooster Rock in Oregon where the dude abandoned his wife because he saw Bigfoot. He left his wife alone with Bigfoot. 
And that was also in the Western Bigfoot Society newsletter. What's funny is I had looked it up before I did that story, but I'd forgotten about it. It's this old CD-ROM. I got the story from thinkaboutitdocs.com because they've compiled so much of this information. But the actual Western Bigfoot Society newsletter is on like a CD-ROM. That's a collection of Bigfoot. It's out of print. You can't find it anywhere. I think about it. Docs.com has been around for a long time. So I think they got it when it was originally being put out as a CD. But it's like a C. Remember when you used to be able to buy CD-ROMs? You used to be able to buy like the encyclopedia on CD. It was kind of like that. It was just a collection of so many newsletter stories you had to put on CD. David Paulitas is one of the editors of it. The guy who is the missing 411 guy. Used to be a huge Bigfoot researcher. I don't know if he still researches Bigfoot. I don't know if he's put both feet into the missing 411 camp. But he was the editor of this. So I would like to track this down, but uh, you can't buy it on Amazon. It's out of print. And if you did, you might be able to stumble across the copy at like a Goodwill or something in someone's collection. This thing would be be incredibly valuable because I've covered two stories from it. And they're either, they're so bonkers, they're either completely made up or this CD-ROM collection of these newsletters is just gold, straight up Bigfoot gold. So maybe that should be your task. I don't have have time to drag it down. But yeah, if you ever had a Goodwill or something like that, just walk up to them and be like, do you have the CD-ROM? Do you have it? They're like, what are you talking about? And you're like, listen, man, you got two choices. You can hand over the CD-ROM. They're like, what's a CD-ROM? It's 2020. You're all, shh. You can hand over the CD-ROM or you can can give me that bag lunch over there because I want to eat it. I want to eat it anyways. Just give me the CD-ROM. Find this CD-ROM for me. Bigfoot, Western Bigfoot Society newsletter. Find it for yourself as well. You can make, you can make yourself a copy. I'm not going to hoard it like Smaug. Misty, let's go ahead and hop in the Dead Rabbit Dreadnought, our massive battleship. We are leaving behind Fort Bragg, California. We've tended to all these loggers' wounds. Because we're going to be nice, because again, season finale. We're leaving behind Fort Bragg, California. We are headed out to a war zone. We are headed out. To Iraq. <sighs> Massive battleship. We gotta get all our troops ready. Klaxons are blaring. I'm just gonna do that that sound effect for the rest of the episode. Sounds like a it sounds like a wolf. We got a wolf on board. We're getting ready. We got the klaxons blaring. We're getting all our gear ready. Loading up. Misty has on her little admiral's uniform. She's given us directions. This actually, and then Fabio shows up. This was actually a request from Fabio Nurbon. He sent us a ton of stuff, a ton of cool stuff. He posted this the other day on YouTube, which is kind of like, as a, hey, have you ever heard of this? And I had it, and I immediately researched it, and I thought, that is going on this season finale. So thank you, Fabio. We're bringing that boat up to Iraq. We're go, 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 go. We're running off with our guns and stuff like that. Technically, it's the year 1997, so there's no war going on right now. But, you know, Iraq had a lot of problems back in the day. So, basically, when I say back in the day, I mean the entire run of Saddam Hussein's bath party over there. In 1997, Saddam Hussein is turning 60 years old. And, just because he's Saddam Hussein... Around the same time, someone tried assassinating one of his sons. So he's like, ah, enough is enough. I could either give up my quest to be a madman, to be a real-life Cobra commander. I could do that. Or I could just keep on being a big old weirdo and put everyone in my country at risk every single moment of their life. 
I'll do part two. I'll do the second one. But he decide, he comes to this conclusion. Here's a quote to show what's going through his mind. Quote, my life has been full of dangers in which I should have lost a lot of blood. But since I have bled only a little, I asked someone to write God's words with my blood in gratitude. Unquote. He hires, I'm putting quotes around that one because I don't think the guy really had a choice. He hires a boss, Shakir Judy, an Islamic calligrapher. And he goes, okay, here's what I want you to do, man. I want you to take my blood. <laughs> the calligrapher's like, oh, awesome. I get to assassinate Saddam Hussein. He's like, no, 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 no. And I heard you say that. I can read minds and I'm going to kill you later. But I want you to take my blood and I want you to write the Quran in my blood. Now, here's the thing. This is why I'm pretty sure this guy wasn't hired. That's blasphemous. There's actually, in the Quran, you cannot write Quranic verses in blood. It's very specific. You can't do that. But Saddam Hussein's sitting at the table, right? Like, what are you going to do? So the calligrapher is probably like, okay, okay, fine, I get. I mean, like, I don't want to. He didn't say that out loud. He's probably like, yes, great idea. (laughs) Great idea, dude. So over the course of two years... Saddam Hussein donates 50 pints of blood. Hold your questions, guy. I know. Hold your questions. He donates 50 pints of blood. Over the course of two years, they're constantly taking blood out of him. He's like at like some historic sign. (laughs) He's signing another declaration of war. They're like, oh, this is not really historic. You do this all the time. He's like, shut up. I say it's historic. It's historic. He's like, oh, yeah, here. Can you wait a minute? Uh, I need to give some blood. Over the course of two years, he donates 50 pints of blood. And a boss, Shakir Judy, takes this blood and mixes it with ink, mixes it with these chemicals, and creates this version of the Quran with Saddam Hussein's blood. There was a journalist named Paul McGough who actually saw the. It's not. It's this isn't an urban legend. This was real. It was able to be viewed. It was in a specific mosque. We'll get into all that in a second. But to give you a description of this, there was a journalist named Paul McGough who described it as this quote. The blood lettering is about two centimeters tall, and the broad decorative borders are dazzling. Blues, light and dark, spots of red and pink, and swirling highlights in black. Unquote. The Guardian's Martin Chulov said, quote, An exquisitely crafted book that would take its place in any art exhibition if it wasn't for the fact that it was written in blood. It was displayed at the Um Al-Marik Mosque. It's been renamed. Uh, Saddam Hussein had it built after the conclusion of the First Gulf War. He named it the Mother of All Battles Mosque. And the minarets were designed to look like scud missiles and the barrels of AK-47. That is according to Wikipedia. I didn't see... The, I didn't see I've never been around a lot of scuds. And I've been around a couple AK-47s, but I didn't see the resemblance. But apparently he built this mosque and had it look like weapons. He had his Quran with his blood in it put in there. And what happened was, you had a big uproar about this. Because again, you're not supposed to write the Quran in blood. Saudi Arabia protested against it. United Arab Emirates were uh, filing declarations against it and stuff like that. But again, Saddam Hussein, he's a madman. So he's like, oh, what? Okay, <laughs> they'll just kill you next. And Saudi Arabia's like, gulp. But they they didn't like this thing. They thought it was blasphemous. So after Gulf War II, when the coalition went into Iraq and they just curb-stomped Saddam Hussein, the caretakers of the mosque that it was in, after the fall of Baghdad, they put it in storage. It's no longer viewable by the public. 
problem is, is that you cannot write Quranic verses in blood. That's blasphemous. Can't do that. However, you cannot destroy a copy of the Quran. So this book just sits there. It was crafted and created with the blood of a dictator. He's a madman. There's no other way to describe Saddam Hussein. There's There's no whitewashing that. So what do you do with this book? You can't destroy it, but its very existence is blasphemous. So it's locked away. They've talked about, maybe it should go into a private collection, private museum or something like that, but it's just sitting in a storage somewhere in that mosque. What's really even more creepy about this whole thing? And this is why I said save your questions for later. You read these articles and people go, there's no way that a human can donate 50 pints of blood in two years. You could, but you would become severely anemic. Like, technically, it's possible, but you would be super sick. And for someone who's so paranoid about being assassinated, it's unlikely that he would put himself at the edge of death for this. Plus, he wasn't even a religious... That's what other people thought. He's not super religious. The Bath Party, which was his political party, was very secular. There's no way that he donated this much blood. And then uh, the other reports would say that he donated 20 pints or 5 pints. And people kind of look, you know, people who really kind of look to this are kind of always thinking. And a couple of out and out said it. There might be a little bit of his blood in that ink. Maybe two pints. But to get to the amount of blood that would be needed to craft this book, you would need the blood of other people. And for a man who was known to kill people for the smallest offense, He may have not used his own blood, but the blood of his enemies to craft this abomination of a holy text. It may not be an object of a man's devotion to God who he felt had protected him through all these battles. It may truly be a blasphemous act. A man who is insulting God by using the blood of the tortured and the damned to craft these Quranic verses. A fascinating story, Fabio. Thanks for sending it over. No one will ever know the truth where he got the blood from. The the calligrapher is still alive, I believe. He's actually living in Virginia. I would assume that someone just delivered the blood to him. I don't think this guy really had anything to do with it other than writing it out, and I don't really think he had much choice because, again, when Saddam Hussein asked you to write a book, can't write the Quran in blood, I mean, you can martyr yourself, but then again, he'll just get somebody else, and you've become the ink for that book. Creepy story. Tsunami Sane was absolutely nuts. And if you have a free weekend, um, check him out. <laughs> I mean, that's not Dead Rabbit Recommends. He's just, you can go on and on reading about him. He really was like a real-life Cobra commander. The stuff he got into was absolutely nuts. If he could have built his tanks and bat droids, he totally would have done it. Misty, let's go ahead and we're going to call in that world-famous Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Iraq. (laughs) Carpenter Copter's flying out. Misty, take us out over the Atlantic Ocean. We're headed back to the United States. But first, I want you to hit that little button right there. (laughs) Going through the time stream. Misty is an expert pilot. She's done this before. She flies us through the time stream. We are headed back to the year... 1389. We're flying over the wilderness that will someday be known as Austin, Texas. 
And we land, we're walking around, we've got our sack lunches still, we're looking for Bigfoot to throw them at, he's not around so we're allowed to eat them, trading peanut butter and jellies for Cheetos and stuff like that. We see an acorn fall off of a tree, and it falls into the ground, and then we sit there, <laughs> we sit there for a couple weeks, we see dirt appear over it, and then we do like one of those time lapse things where we're like moving super like jarry and jittery and stuff like that. What I mean to say is we are going to sit here for 600 years. We're just going to stay here perfectly still and we see this little acorn. You know what I mean when it's all moving fast and we see the little uh, green thing pop out of it and then like little leaves appear and then it like, I'm not going to describe every life cycle of a tree. And then the bark appears and then and now we're 600 years later. It's 1989. It's May. We're sitting in Austin, Texas. We are starving. All we brought was that bag lunch. We ate that our first day. We're starving. So after we run to McDonald's and get some spicy chicken nuggets, we show back up. It's 1989. It's May. And we're standing in front of Treaty Oak. That's what this tree has been named. It's 600 years old. This thing is older than the printing press. All of its brothers and brethren have been sacrificed to that horrible machine over the centuries. But this tree has stood tall 600 years old. The branches spread out to over 100 feet. So we're like, whoa, look at that. We're throwing footballs. <laughs> That's how we judge distance. I can throw a football 100 feet. Look, and I can only throw it. Is that a long distance, really? 100 feet? 100 yards is. And I know 100 feet's less than 100 yards. Anyways, we're throwing footballs. We're like, whoa, dude. Look, and I can only throw the football the size of Treaty Oak. It's massive. It's tall, too. It's not just tiny and 100 feet big. Actually, a bunch of tree nerds love this tree. The American Forestry Association actually declared in the 1920s, they had nothing better to do this day. They're like, what do you want to do today? And they're like, I don't know. It's kind of boring being the American Forestry Association. Let's declare a tree the most perfect tree in North America. And they declare Treaty Oak to be the most perfect tree. It's definitely a big landmark locally. Everyone knows about Treaty Oak. That's where they hold all their football throwing competitions. They're like, Barry can throw a football farther than the tree. Everyone's like, oh, he's going to go pro. He's going to move up to that Redwood League I hear. Everyone knows about it in town. Obviously, it's hard to ignore. It's a 600-year-old, 100-foot-in-diameter tree. You can't ignore it. But people just love it. The picnic's there, and the guy we're about to introduce, his name is John Gidratus, uh, proposed to his wife there. So a bunch of bunch of tree nerds live in this town. I'm sure people moved to this town specifically to hang out at Treaty Oak. Some tree fetishist. He's like, oh yeah, I'll throw a football. I'll throw my football. And we're like, dude, dude, stop it. Quit making this gross, dude. Misty, tase that, tase that weirdo. So she's tasing him. We're going to continue with our story. John is the forester for the Parks Department of Austin, Texas. He loved the tree so much, he got a job hanging out with trees. One day, he's giving a tour. I can, I, I, listen, dude, I love trees and stuff like that. They're fine, okay? They give me oxygen and they squirrel meat when I'm hungry. But this guy, John, is the head of forestry in Austin, Texas. How much forest is in Austin, Texas to begin with? Secondly... He then gives tours for other people from around the state, other foresters from around the state, come to Austin, Texas, and he gives them tours. Now, that's not his whole job. He does other stuff, too. But that would seem like, could you imagine hanging out with a bunch of forest foresters? Bunch of people like being like, dude, have you seen the deciduous of 2020? Oh man, those are so good. No way, man. The saplings of 2021 are going to take the title. Like, oh my God. Oh my God. I'd be like, can I cut down a tree, turn it into a spear, and just skewer all of you right now? 
The point is, is he's hanging out with a bunch of forestry nerds, and he walks up to Treaty Oak, and this thing has been a massive thing for this community, and he notices a bunch of dead grass around the tree, and he goes, that's weird. But he kind of chalks it up to think, you know, maybe other forestry people aren't taking care of the, the landscape. It happens. We hire interns. They're super lazy and stuff like that. That one tried making a spear and killing us all that one day. Doesn't really think anything of it. But months later, he starts to see other signs. But not on the ground around Treaty Oak, but in Treaty Oak itself. Starts to look sick. Bark falling off. The leaves. The leaves have little thermometers sticking out of their mouth. They have a fever. They look sick. They have little water packs on their head. And he's like, okay, now I'm getting suspicious. The the tree looks sick. So he starts sending off soil samples, uh, hoping that it's just some weird quirk. Maybe the tree was a cutter. Maybe the tree was a cutter. It was breaking off its own bark late at night. Oh. He sent off the soil samples, and the scientists call him back, and he goes, uh, where'd you get these at? And they're like, I got it at the base of Treaty Oak. Hello? Hello? And the scientist on the other end is like, oh my god. This soil tests positive for Velpar. Forster's like, what's Velpar? And the scientist goes, I'm glad you asked. Velpar is actually a herbicide which is designed specifically to kill hardwood trees. John looks John looks at the tree and goes, is it oak a hardwood? Because I have to look that up. I have to look up if oak is a hardwood. And the scientist goes, yes, oak is a hardwood. So treaty oak has been poisoned with one of the only poisons specifically designed to kill an oak tree. Now, I don't know why you would develop a poison what mad scientist Saddam Hussein decided he hated the Redwoods? What? Who would go, hmm, you know what we really need to kill is all of these hardwood trees. But anyway, someone, some, actually I know who designed it. It was uh, DuPont because they actually factor later in the story. But anyway, so the four, now they got a mystery on their hand. Who's poisoning this tree? They don't really care about why. They just want to stop it. This, the news starts to get out. They're really trying to figure this out. And it becomes... It's obviously big local news. Then it becomes big state news. Then it becomes national news. Eventually, it's international. Who is trying to kill a 600-year-old tree? This is intentional. This was not accidental. Old-timers like myself should remember the name Ross Perot. He ran for president when Clinton and Bush were running for president. A lot of people believe he split the conservative vote. He was a lot of things. I actually might do an episode on him because he's been involved in some pretty kooky adventures. But this was one of them. He actually was a famous Texan. He was a billionaire. He finds out about Treaty Oak. He calls up John and says, do whatever you need to do. Send me the bill later. You have a blank check to find out what's going on. And so at that point, John was like, oh, that's awesome. So he is allowed to start calling in experts from all over the world. The first point is to save the tree. We can find out who's doing it later because they can't do it anymore. We have to save this tree. So they start building. I didn't know this, but if a tree is dying, you know, trees need sunlight to live. But if a tree is dying, the sun actually hurts it, which is kind of bizarre. They built this giant shading structure over it so it could get sunlight, but not so much harsh sunlight. So they built that over that. We're throwing footballs over the construction workers. They're like, hey, man, we're way up really high. We're trying to build this shade thing. I was like, I just want to see how far I can throw a football. They build this shade thing. You have people showing up and they're injecting sugar and salt directly into the tree. The salt actually sucks off some of the poison. And the sugar helps the tree have more energy to grow. They're even bringing fresh water. This is a waste. This was a waste of money, right? This was some hippie going, you know what we need? We need springborn water. 
They're using fresh spring water. Water's water, bro. They're bringing in like bottles of Alhambra and blah, 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 pouring it all around the tree. Water's water. But they're doing all this stuff. The tree is still dying. He, he ends up getting all these experts together and goes, what are the chances of us saving this tree? And every expert said, zero. Like, this is a poison that was specifically designed to kill these types of trees. There's no way to save this tree. It will die. It's just a question of how long it'll take to die. Let me, I'm going to read you this quote to let you know just how important this tree was to people. I probably should have read this earlier in the episode. But they're now declaring the tree will die. There's no saving the tree. Let me read you this quote. And, And I should say this too. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I got all of this information from an amazing article on CNN. It's by Trisha Gopal, Phil Robero, and Dave Yim. So hats off to those three journalists. This is an amazing article, and I thank you for them. Let me read you this quote that they got. This is from John the Forester. Quote, There was a parade of people, hundreds, thousands of people came by that heard about it in the news. They left chicken soup, maylocks, they left tums. They left nickels and dimes and dollars. They mailed cards and letters from all over the world. Get well soon. We're praying for you. Whether it was evangelicals that came out there, or the Buddhist monks, the white witches, New Agers with the crystals, all these groups genuinely went there and tried to connect with the spirit to try to help it, to try and heal it. Unquote. Now, dropping dropping Maylocks off of the tree... That, that's someone having a laugh. But basically, the whole thing was that you had people all over the world rooting for this tree to survive. Now, while John and his experts are trying to figure out a way to save the tree, let's switch perspective here. We're going to the law enforcement side. And there we have another guy named John. So we're going to call him by his last name. We have Officer John Jones. Detective John Jones, actually. He worked for Austin Police Department. He was just promoted to detective. And his first case is... Find out who is killing this tree. And he thinks it's a joke. He goes, he said everyone in the station had a laugh. It's a tree. What are you going to do? Yeah, people love it, but we have more important things to look into. He figured, I'm just going to do a write-up on it. There's no witnesses. There's no suspects. And just file it away. It's just a tree. Then he starts getting phone calls from Japan, getting phone calls from New York, phone calls from all over the world. All these news organizations are calling him up because this is an international story. What are you doing to catch the tree killer? And he's like, great. Like, what can I do to catch the tree killer? The crime took place so long ago. Remember, he was poisoned months ago. How are you going to catch this guy? What always helps catch people is a little bit of that green stuff. I'm not talking about leaves. I'm not talking about pine needles. I'm talking about money. The Austin Forestry Service and DuPont, the ones who developed Velpar for whatever bizarre reason, they combine their money and offer an $11,000 reward. That's when a woman named Cindy Blanco enters the scene. This is the story she tells police. She's a methadone user trying to kick her addiction. And she carpooled with another methadone user named Paul Stedman Colon. On a couple of these car rides, Paul would tell this story. He said, I'm in love with someone. Cindy's like, oh great, please don't be me, please don't be me. And Paul's like, it's my mental health counselor. And she's like, oh, thank God. I'm in love with my mental health counselor, and I know she doesn't feel the same way about me. And I have to see her because I need mental health counseling. 
And it just breaks my heart. I, I, uh, it hurts. It physically hurts my heart. <laughs> I might have to get that checked out. But I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's not heart attack. I'm pretty sure it's just this love I feel for her. And he mentioned this a couple times. He was quite literally obsessed with her, this mental health counselor. And that heart. We've all felt that, right? That heartache. That unrequited love. One day they're doing their carpool thing to the methadone clinic. And Paul tells Cindy, I think I found a way to cure my broken heart. Cindy's like, what? I know she's never going to be with me and I can't move on. I I need to get this love out of my system. I found a book on witchcraft and it has an anti-love spell. It says what you have to do is you have to kill something and that will kill the love in your heart. He said, quote, well, let me pick the biggest thing around here and kill it. And as it decomposes, so will my love for her. Now, Cindy tells this story to Detective Jones, and Detective Jones is like, this is the best lead we have. He didn't specifically say he killed the tree, but he talked about killing the biggest thing around here, and that is only the tree. That and that Texas fighting spirit. But you can't kill that. So, he asked Cindy, will you wear a wire? <laughs> will you wear a wire in this tree murder case? And she goes, yeah, sure. So, she's wearing the wire, and she has another conversation with him, and this is all being recorded, and he confesses on the wire. He's like, oh, yeah, that tree, I totally killed that tree on that. He's all given the address. Oh, yeah, totally. Here's photos of me standing underneath the tree, and here's photos of me injecting poison into it. He confessed to it. Cut. He confessed to it. The cops ended up arresting him. They get a search warrant for his house. They found soil samples at his house, tested positive for Velpar. They found books about magic, but I don't think that was enough to make the case. I don't think the lawyer included that. The journalist did in the article. They're like, they found books on witchcraft. I think the, the prosecutor would be like, that's not really that's not evidence for killing a tree. Everyone has books on witchcraft. Gargamel's constantly getting arrested. He pled not guilty, but since he admitted on tape, he was found guilty. He was sentenced to nine years in prison. I don't know what the charge was. Because that's not like malicious vandalism. That's a pretty serious charge. He, he was sentenced to nine years in prison. He only served three. And then he got out and he moved to California where he passed away in 2001, just a couple of years later after he got out. The tree, however, is still alive. Still alive to this day, but only 35% of it. So I don't know how they calculate that. <laughs> I don't know if it's literally like, it looks like, a cyborg, there's parts of it grafted on metal parts of the tree. I, most of it has died. Like 35%. If you were 35% alive, what is that? Like your head and half a shoulder, maybe. But it's here to stay. They said that we thought it was going to die. We 100% thought we couldn't save it. And you go, it's 30, 35% now. That means it's just going to keep going down. No, they actually said right now it's amazing. It's still continuing to grow, even though... Most of it's dead. The parts that are alive are still continuing to grow. In 1997, this he was poisoned in 1989, but in 1997, it produced its first crop of acorns since the poisoning. I hope they put a little sign up for the squirrels that said, don't eat these squirrels. These acorns may contain a toxic poison that was specifically designed to kill a tree, but didn't. So that is the story of Treaty Oak. I think it's a great way to wrap up season 11. 
It was a man who was so heartbroken, he turned to black magic to try to heal his heart. And attempted to murder one of the oldest things in North America. We have a man who commits a selfish act and tries to steal something away that people in the community loved, they grew up with. And then you have people from around the world who had never even seen the tree, didn't even know it existed. But hearing this story and gathering their resources, we had people committing financial resources. We had people committing scientific expertise. We had law enforcement, begrudgingly, but we had law enforcement on the case. And everyone who didn't have financial means, everyone who didn't have the ability to kick down a perp's door or to look in a microscope, they were sending their well wishes, they were sending their positive energy out to this tree and out to the people who were trying to protect it. And I love stories like that. I love stories where I see people get together and fight for what's right. It's a great story. And everyone was pooling whatever they could do to help save the life of the tree, and they were successful. But at the same time, this story started because you had a man who was so broken inside that he felt the only way he could cure it was by killing the biggest thing he could find. So part of life is knowing when to stand up and fight to save lives. And part of it is reaching out to these people, these broken people, before they get to this stage. Somebody could have reached out to this man before he poisoned the tree and been a positive role model for him. And you know, this is going to sound ridiculous, but somebody could have done the same thing with Saddam Hussein. These people aren't born broken. They become broken because they they that's what they see reflected in their world around them is broken people. So they create more broken people. But the truth is, is everyone's not broken. The truth is, is that when it came down to it, you had hundreds of thousands of people trying to save this tree that they had never seen before. So we can reach out to these people. They're not broken. They just view themselves as broken. They have a fragmented way of seeing the world where violence and death is the way. You can avoid so many problems if we reach out to these people and fix that before we get there. You're not born a school shooter, you become one. And I think that most school shootings never happen because a coach or a dad or a friend or a boss intervene at the right time. Kids that are frustrated, kids that don't know how to deal with things, somebody, either a peer or an adult, shows up at just the right time to be that positive role model, to turn them from that violent act, that unforgivable violent act we can come together as a community when we need to and that's the great thing i love about humanity it will cross borders it'll cross cultures it'll cross everything we can come together as a community when we, when we need to but we would need to less if we prevented this stuff in the first place i know that's a little preachy for the season finale of dead rabbit radio but just look around in your life, in your community. Look around for that man or that woman, that child who may be suffering and think about ways that you can avert that. I think it's something if we did more of, we'd have a lot less Saddam Husseins. 
DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is depressing. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail. Well, it's kind of uplifting. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. And Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great week. I'll have repeats all next week, so don't go away. I love you guys. I'll see you later.